Well, would you turn with me in your Bibles to two places today? First, again, to Psalm 22. And then to Matthew chapter 27. Psalm 22 and Matthew 27. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence? For the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Psalm 22 and just verses 4 through 8. This is the word of God. Let's give it our attention. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then to Matthew 27, as we continue to consider the crucifixion of Christ together. Beginning in verse 37. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. If you were making a top ten list of the most polarizing persons in history, who would make your list? Maybe you can remember back to the news cycle of the 2016 presidential election, or what your Facebook feed was like in those days. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, if ever there were two polarizing political figures in American politics, they would be near the top of that list. And you were sure it couldn't be worse, and then came 2020. And it was. My Facebook feed, like yours, was filled with posts that oozed with contempt, not only for the politics and the policies of the candidates, but for their own persons, 
their families. If you were making a top ten list of the most polarizing figures in human history, who would be on it? Athletes, artists, politicians, religious figures, maybe all of the above. But Donald Trump is not the most polarizing figure in history, nor is Hillary Clinton. The most polarizing figure in all of human history is Jesus Christ. No one divides, no one separates humanity more than the claims of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said this, that he would be the cause of separating mothers from their daughters, sons from their fathers. In Matthew 12, 30, he said, whoever is not with me is against me. And today, as we come to this passage, we might ask, who is even with him? As we find him here on the cross, he is alone. All of his disciples have fled, and he has no one. And it seems that the whole world is against him. There are four different groups represented here. The politically powerful the religious elites, the common crowds, and even criminals. Four groups that seemingly have nothing in common, but they have this one thing in common, their contempt for Christ. As we continue to consider Matthew's presentation of the cross of Christ He presents it to us as a theater of contempt. There is no one more polarizing than Jesus, and there is nothing that divides people more than the cross of Jesus Christ. It is either the object of your glory, or it is the object of contempt. There is no middle ground. And so as we continue to consider this account, let's do our best to just take in and to appreciate the level of scorn and contempt that is being poured out on Jesus in this passage. And as we do so, let me give you just three points to help sort of organize our thinking as we work through this passage of Scripture together. First, we're going to see that there is a sign of contempt here. As the Romans ridicule Jesus by crafting this contemptuous sign that they hang over his head. Uh, Secondly, there is not only a sign of contempt, we're going to see the source of contempt as we consider the diversity of those who are present here heaping ridicule and contempt on Jesus. And then finally, we're going to drill down on the substance of the contempt. What is it? about Jesus? What is it about the cross that is so offensive to people, that is so contemptuous? In verses 37 through 38, we see this sign of contempt. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. 
And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the left. Make no mistake, uh, the sign is dripping. It is oozing with mockery and contempt. Uh, It is a picture of the depraved sense of humor of the Roman soldiers. They are loving this. They have already dressed Jesus up as a mock king. They have already robed him after they beat him nearly to death, scourging him with that cat of nine tails, ripping his flesh to pieces. They hung a scarlet robe over his torn shoulders. And then they wove together a crown of thorns and they pressed it into his forehead. And then they took a reed and they put it in his hand as a a fake scepter. And then one by one, the soldiers came and they bowed before him. Hail, King of the Jews. And then they stood up and they spit in his face and they took the reed out of his hand and they hit him on the head, crushing that crown deeper into his temple. And one by one, they went through this charade. Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. They are taking the opportunity not only to mock Jesus, but to mock the Jews. And the Jews didn't want this. Uh, the other Gospels tell us that they told Pilate, don't write that he's the King of the Jews. Write that he said he was the King of the Jews. Pilate said, no, I've written what I have written. And so, add to all the pain and the agony and the shame, this public sign of contempt is nailed to the cross, and then Jesus is placed between two criminals. The ESV translates this as robbers, but really, the word means insurrectionists. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, Bruner suggests that we might even translate it as terrorists. Right? These are men who are murderers. They are revolutionaries. Uh, we can only assume that they are the companions of Jesus Barabbas, the one who was chosen to be released in place of Jesus who is called the Christ. And what does Jesus mean? The word literally means that Yahweh saves. They were choosing their Savior, and the Savior, the kind of Savior they wanted was a victorious Savior, one who looked the part. And so they took Jesus Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, and he was set free. But here, his companions are crucified. And Jesus is crucified right in between them, guilty by association, And so the prophecy of Isaiah 53 is being fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. And on the one hand, in the case of the criminals, justice is actually being served, isn't it? As horrific and as terrible a death as crucifixion was, as bestial as the Roman soldiers were, they were exercising justice. They were punishing crime. They were meeting out that penalty of capital punishment. Paul tells us that the Romans, as with all governments, 
are the servants of God. They are an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. These insurrectionists were getting what they deserved. But on the other hand, in the case of Jesus, the most bitter and cruel injustice in the history of the world is being committed. There are terrible injustices in the world. But there was never an injustice so great as this, that the only innocent and perfectly righteous man who ever lived should be treated like a criminal, should be tortured and killed for crimes he did not commit. And yet he went to the cross not for crimes, that he committed, but for the crimes that we committed. When crime is committed, justice should be served. If God were not just, there would be no need for the cross. There would be no demand that he suffer and die, but God is just. God is holy and just and righteous and loving. It's why we can sing that hymn with the hymn writer, Let Us Wonder at grace and justice. Join and point to mercy's store when through Christ, grace and Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. What Christ receives at the cross is the justice that is due for sinners. And we shouldn't pass over too quickly the way that it's stated. Matthew makes the point that these criminals are crucified, one on his right hand and one on his left. He could have just said that he was crucified between two thieves, between two robbers. But instead, he uses this language of one on the right and one on the left. That's language that we've heard before in Matthew's gospel, isn't it? We heard it from that mother of two of Jesus' disciples as she came to Jesus and asked Jesus if he would do her this favor if he would allow her two sons to sit, one on Jesus' right hand and one on his left, when he entered into his kingdom. Remember what Jesus replied? You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am going to drink? That cup of God's wrath that is going to be poured out? Do you really want your sons to sit at my right hand and at my left. To be identified with Christ, to be at his right hand and his left is to share in his sufferings. That's why Jesus will go on to say there, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. You want to be great? Okay, here's how you're great. The great among you shall be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want the honor of being identified with Christ, of sitting at his right and his left hand? This is what that honor means. It means to be identified with him in his sufferings. People want to be close to Jesus for the wrong reasons. This mother wanted it for the wrong reasons. 
She wanted glory and honor and reputation for her sons. People want to be close to Jesus, except when it means sharing in his sufferings. But Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. That's the nature of his kingdom. He's a servant king. He's a king who comes and he gives up his life for his subjects. The rulers of this world, they have all known self-serving kings. The only kings that they have known are kings who in their power abuse their subjects, kings that use their subjects, kings that enslave their subjects. But Jesus is not like the kings of this world. He would suffer in place of his subjects rather than have them subjected to suffering. And that in the eyes of the world is weakness, weakness to be scorned, weakness deserving of death. And so they hang Jesus between these two criminals and they place this sign over his head. This is Jesus the King. They believe it is the climax of contempt that a king should hang on a cross. Ironically, what is meant as a sign of contempt actually serves as a witness to his glory because it's true. It's all true. He is a king, and he's a king like no other. He is a king whose glory and power is actually being put on display at the cross. We'll come back to that in a moment, but for now, having considered this sign of contempt, let's go on. Let's, let's consider the source of contempt. It's not just the Romans. It's not just the Romans who treat Jesus with contempt. It's as if the whole world is getting in on this shaming show. And that's precisely what we're meant to feel as we read this. These four separate groups, four groups which culturally, economically, politically have nothing in common, they still have this one thing in common. They have scorn and contempt for the cross of Jesus Christ. We've seen it in the Romans, now see it in the crowds. Crucifixions were public affairs. They were performed on hillsides and high-traffic areas, uh, just like port cities used to hang pirates at the port of entry, right? Uh, so that other pirates might be warned as they sailed in. So the Romans would crucify their victims in public places as a warning to others. And there would likely have been many people passing by this horrific sight, And in this instance, many of the passers-by would likely have been Jewish people, citizens of Jerusalem. Uh, Many of those crowds who were there at Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And verse 39 tells us that those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, shaking their heads at him, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God... Come down from the cross. They're unwittingly 
fulfilling those words from the psalmist, all those who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They stick out their tongues at me. They wag their heads. Uh, the word that's, that's translated here in the ESV that they derided him is really the Greek word for blasphemy. Our English word blasphemy is just a transliteration directly from the Greek word blasphemeo. They blasphemed him. It's not a word that we use often. What does it even mean to blaspheme? Um, well, blasphemy is, is disrespect that is directed toward God himself. It's either an attitude or an act that is directed at God's character, at God's will, at his word, at his person. When someone is blaspheming, they are expressing their disgust and disapproval with who God is and what he has done. Now, of course, they don't think they're blaspheming. In fact, they think it's just the opposite. They, they think that Jesus is the blasphemer. He said he was going to destroy the temple. No. He said destroy this temple, speaking of the temple of his body. And he would raise it up in three days. And in fact, that prophecy is being fulfilled as he hangs on the cross. They are destroying his body. And so they don't think they're blaspheming, but Matthew makes it clear what is actually going on despite what they think. They are deriding the Son of God. They are committing blasphemy. They are saying, this is not God's way. This is not God's will. This is disgusting. You are disgusting. And it might be one thing for the crowds to do this, but notice that they're joined by the religious leaders, the chief priests, with the scribes and the elders. And translate that into our vernacular today, the pastors and the elders and the deacons, the shepherds, the spiritual leaders, the people who should know better. They are joining in the mockery. They are joining in the taunt. So we read that they mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Again, the words of Psalm 22 are being fulfilled. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. And notice that their, their taunt is sort of twofold. First, they taunt him to save himself. After all, he saved others. Save yourself. And they couldn't deny the great many people that Jesus had helped and that he'd saved. The eyes of the blind were open. The tongue of the deaf were unstopped. The lame leaped for joy. They saw the evidence of the power of Christ. They were witnesses to it. But what did they say about it? They actually used it as a weapon against him. 
They weaponized his own mercy and his goodness. They couldn't deny his power, and so what did they do? They said that it was demonic power. That he did these things by the power of the devil. Here's the taunt. If it was really by God's power, this is your opportunity to show it. You can prove it now, once and for all. Just come down from the cross. Save yourself. Well, maybe you can't save yourself. Well, if you can't save yourself, then maybe God will save you. You trust in God? Well, let God deliver you now, if he even desires you. If God really loved you, he wouldn't let you endure this. If you were really God's son, he would come to your rescue. Jesus has already endured so much. So much physical agony, so much pain and torment. As he hangs there torn and bleeding. He's already been subjected to so much humiliation and shame as he hangs there naked and exposed. And now add to all of that the contempt and the scorn of the very ones he came to save. He came to his own. And they rejected him. They did not receive him. And if it were not enough that the Romans derided him, if it were not enough that the crowds blasphemed him and the religious leaders scorned him, add to that the criminals. Even the criminals We're told in verse 44 that they reviled him in the same way. Those who were actually guilty, who were dying for crimes that they actually had committed, they join in the shame show. Incredible, isn't it? The depth of depravity in the human heart, that though bleeding and suffering, though they themselves have been subjected to this humiliation and shame, they are still able to generate this hatred and vile from within. Even from the cross, they are able to join in reviling Jesus. It is as though Jesus is alone. The whole world of humanity, Jews and Gentiles, the powerful and the poor, the captains and the common folk, the religious and the unreligious, they all get together in this sick and sadistic contempt for Jesus. And that brings us to our final point, the substance of their contempt. While there are actually many reasons for their contempt, he claims to be the king of Israel, he claims to be the son of God, he claims to have saving power. Did you notice when we read this that there is is one element to the substance of their contempt that is common to all? It is their contempt for the cross. You see it in verse 40 from the crowds. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Again, in verse 42, from the religious leaders, He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down from the cross, and we will believe in Him. Again, from the criminals, verse 44, who reviled Him 
in the same way. It's the cross that is offensive. It was offensive to the Romans, for whom it was an instrument of torture. It was repulsive. A Roman citizen could not be crucified apart from a direct edict from Caesar himself. Uh, To the Jews, it was a picture of God's wrath and curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And it is this idea that the king of Israel should be crucified on a cross that is particularly disgusting and repulsive. And, And notice how the taunt is directed toward his ability to remove himself from this agony. Remove yourself from the curse of the cross. If you are the king, come down. If you're the son of God, come down. That should sound familiar because it's the exact same words that Satan used against Jesus in the the wilderness. If you really are the son of God, prove it. Turn these stones to bread. Throw yourself down and let the angels catch you. And that's exactly what they're saying here. They're saying, if you are who you say you are, prove it. And in fact, they double down on it, don't they? They say, and if you come down, we'll believe. Now, could Jesus come down? Of course he could. What did Jesus say in the garden? He, when, when Peter is drawing swords to defend Jesus as though Jesus needs his defense, Jesus says to him, do you not think that I cannot, cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me 12 legions of angels? But if I did that, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? They are tempting Jesus to abandon what is written in the scriptures of him. They are tempting Jesus to abandon God's will for him. They're tempting Jesus to find the path of glory outside of the cross. But there's this major misstep in their thinking, isn't there? You see, what they all suppose is that the most spectacular and the most impressive way for Jesus to prove his power as the Son of God would be to come down from the cross. That's their assumption. You want to prove it? You want to show us the spectacular power of the Son of God? Come down from the cross. But the fact of the matter is that the most spectacular and impressive display of power is not in coming down from the cross. It's in staying on the cross. That's where the real power is. It's in enduring the cross. It's in his resolve to do the will of God at all costs. It's in his resolve to love his enemies. It is in his commitment to suffer in their place. The cross is the power of God. And that is why the cross of Christ is the most polarizing event in all of history. It is why men either glory in it or find it offensive. 
What is so offensive about the cross? What is offensive about the cross is that it reveals several things. It reveals very clearly the depth of human depravity. The cross shows us the wickedness of man. The cross tells us the truth about ourselves. It exposes our hearts. The hymn writer put it this way, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the Christ, the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. What do you think about your sins? Everybody sins. It's not a big deal. Ye who think of sin, but lightly. It's not as bad as you say it is. Nor suppose the evil great. If you want to see how dark and deep and bad your sins are, you just have to look at the cross. You just have to look at the evil and the wickedness perpetrated there. Yeah, but I would never do that. You did do that. Look at the injustice, the humiliation, the shame, the agony. This is what you're capable of. Just look around the world. Look at the gross injustices. Look at the evils perpetrated by mankind. And as you look into the mirror of your own wickedness, you will also see what your wickedness deserves. At the cross, you see the wrath of God being poured out against sin. That is why it is the only place where sinners can meet with God is at the cross. The only place for sinners to meet God is at the cross. The problem is sinners do not want to meet God at the cross. They want to meet God on their own terms. Come down from the cross and I will believe in you. They want a crossless Christianity, a Christianity that is not so offensive. Just as Jesus was not their kind of Messiah, he's not the kind of Messiah that many want. They want a Messiah that's affirming and pampering and tells them they're not that bad. People want to meet God anywhere but at the cross. They want to meet him by their own good works, by the gifts they give to charity, by their volunteering at the homeless shelter, by their supporting the right causes. They want to meet God by being a good person, by being not as bad as the other guy. In fact, the cross says you are as bad as the other guy. The cross says there is something desperately sick and twisted with your heart. And if you're honest, you know it's true. And you know that you have no control over yourself. So sick and twisted that God's holiness and justice demand that it be punished. The cross is offensive, 
because it tells you unequivocally that you need a Savior. The very thing we do not want to admit. But while the cross shows you your wickedness, and while it shows you what your sins deserve, and while it shows you that you need a Savior, it also shows you something far more glorious. It actually shows you the Savior. It shows you the love of God for his enemies. It shows it to you in the Father's eternal purpose to give his Son as a substitute. It shows it to you in the Son's resolve not to come down from the cross. It shows it to you every time the Spirit works with his word to proclaim this good news. And the good news is that you can give up all of your efforts to meet God on your own terms, and you can meet him on his You can meet him at the cross of Christ. The cross is that revelation of the wickedness of our sin, but it is also the most perfect revelation of the love and grace and kindness of the Savior who stays on it. That cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's just a crutch for weak people. I'll admit that. In fact, I'll, I'll say it's way more than that. It's more than just a crutch. It's more than a band-aid. It is a total remedy. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And do you know that at least one of these revilers came to understand that that day? One of, one of the wonderful things about having four Gospels is that we get a fuller picture of the events as they transpired. And somewhere between verse 44 and verse 45 in Matthew's account, Luke fills in the details that one of these criminals would begin to see that while he was suffering, he was suffering for his own sins. And he began to see that Jesus was not. And through the cross, he came to see who he was and he came to see who Christ was. He came to understand that he was the king. And though only moments before, moments before, he had been reviling Jesus, he had been heaping scorn on Jesus, he had been contempting Christ, in a moment his heart was changed. And in that moment he discovered the grace and power of Christ. And he looked over at Jesus, and he simply said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How did Jesus respond? With sarcasm? Did he respond in kind with bitterness and contempt? Did he say, you jerk? You dare to presume? You dare to ask me to take you into my kingdom after shaming me in this way? No, what did he say? He said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And what is true for the thief on the cross is true for every one of us. This rebel who had spent his whole life against God, in contempt of God, finally meets God on his terms as he meets him at the cross. 
He finally owns and admits his sin. He admits what he deserves, and he looks to Christ for salvation. The old hymn said it well. The vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. What do you believe about the cross? Does it offend you? Do you want to be your own savior? Do you want to believe you don't need a savior? Or is the cross your hope? Are you still trying to meet God on your own terms? Or will you meet him on his? May God help us all to glory in the cross. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, the cross is offensive to us in our flesh because we want to believe that we don't need salvation, that we don't need a Savior, that we are not so bad. And yet the cross shows us the depth of our badness. It shows us the vileness that is in our own hearts. But Lord, it also shows us how deep and how great your love is for sinners. That you would give your only begotten Son to live not only the life that we could never live, but to die the death that we deserved in order to give us eternal life, to give us hope. And so, Lord, we pray that we would glory in the cross and that as we glory in the cross, that you would be pleased to make our lives lives of gratitude and thanksgiving to you for all your gifts, but especially for this gift of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.